Welcome everyone to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. I am your host as always, uh, Gregory Carter, colorectal registrar up in Edinburgh. And with me, a good friend, Ceci. How are you? I'm fine, Greg. I'm especially delighted today because it's finally stopped snowing in Scotland. I'm so pleased. Of course, at the time of recording, this is March and we did have a weekend of good weather, actually. Um, and yes, you're right. The cold weather is, is leaving. The daylight hours are increasing and summer seems to be approaching, as well as some hope in this pandemic fight that we're currently in with vaccinations. But all positive, all positive. I am looking forward to this episode, though, because our guest is a man that I've had some dealings with over the last year and a half with the college as the leadership fellow. Some of our time together, the most memorable of which was at the last rugby match that ever had fans at the Murrayfields that had a full stadium. Today we have with us Tim Graham, consultant cardiothoracic surgeon and also the head of professional standards at RCS Ed and member of council. Tim, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for, uh, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you. Rumour has it that you're actually a retired cardiothoracic surgeon, is that correct? Yeah, I've kind of retired and returned. I've not um, done too much clinically with in terms of cardiac surgery since uh, 2017, but I've stayed stayed reasonably busy. And we'll explore some of that as we go through the episode. So usually on the podcast, the first thing we do is try to get to know our guests a little better, and we try to do it in your own words. So open question, who is Tim Graham? Tim Graham is, as you say, consultant cardiothoracic surgeon. He is uh, born in Yorkshire quite a long time ago, 1956. You're probably going to go through it with me, but I was an undergraduate in Scotland uh, and two or three three generations back, my family initially uh, hailed from Scotland, uh, hence the surname uh, Graham. In terms of who I am, I guess I'm, uh, I'd like to think I'm a fairly sort of normal, normal bloke, uh, likes kind of normal blokish things. Um, I'm happily married and I don't know really, it's a bit difficult to say exactly who you are. I suppose in what we do and why we're talking, you tend to get defined by, by what you do and what you've done. But underneath it all, I'd like to think I was quite a normal sort of bloke really. Yeah, an all-round good guy. Tim, I can help you explore some of who Tim Graham is with the next bit, which are the quick-fire questions. Firstly, why cardiac surgery? I liked the pathophysiology. There's no small operations. Having somebody on and off bypass is just, is just phenomenal. I kind of, uh, kind of fell into it. Uh, I was actually originally going to do obstetrics and gynecology and set off i can't see that um, yeah, I, I genuinely can't, can't see that set, set off to do that and i was advised to do my primary surgery primary did that but sort of uh, never went back off the back of that i was lucky to get a job up in, uh, in newcastle and then uh, from there onwards pursued cardiothoracic surgery mainly cardiac surgery sort of in my consultant career and if, uh, you know, you've sort of answered this, but I hope you change your answer. But if cardiac surgery was, you know, you, you go into it and then you think this, this isn't for me. The personality type does not suit me. I am not 
what are the other words used? You know, the the high performing uh, type A pseudo psychopathic tendencies are, are not for me. So, what else would you do? Uh, okay, there's a few generalizations in there, but I uh, I I recognise some of that clearly in my colleagues, not in myself. Um, what would I have done? Probably going looking back, maybe a, a craft specialty like working with my hands. So. In actual fact, looking back, probably ophthalmology would have been a, a good choice, or maybe reconstructive plastic surgery. I think the technical elements of, of both of those surgical specialties are incredibly interesting, um, technically challenging, and probably the great advantage is that you don't spend uh, hours and hours of your life as a registrar sat on the ITU at the bottom of the bed watching the bleeding, because that's that's kind of what went with the territory with cardiothoracic surgery in my in my younger days. Similar to that, I guess, if I was to, if surgery was not uh, for you in general, so apart from anything surgical, uh, what else would you do outside of surgery? Probably would have done economics, gone into uh, some degree of finance. I was uh, fortunate, I managed to get my A-levels out of the way quite early at 17 and did economics as an A-level. So I would have probably... uh, Probably gone into uh, into finance, brought lots of three-piece suits, flash shirts and ties, and hopefully retired in my late 40s. I can see that in you, Tim Graham. And interestingly about you, you are described as a consultant's cardiac surgery to the British military. Is that correct? And how did you fall into that? So, yeah, I'm... I've got uh, the title or the role of uh, civilian consultant to the uh, British Army in, in cardiac surgery. It's it's not necessarily what I would call a, a, a clinical role, and, and neither does it carry a rank with it. Uh, but it's essentially liaison between the uh, the, the British British Army uh, and NHS clinical services, British Army personnel that may require cardiac surgical treatment, so they can be directed in the, uh, in, the in the correct way. The reason that came about was because the uh, Royal Army Medical Centre is now based in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is part of UHB Trust. Uh, and this came about really as an amalgamation of all the military hospitals uh, onto one site so that essentially British military personnel who were injured overseas could come back and be looked, looked after in the best intensive care and best medical environments rather than uh, smaller military hospitals. At the time, it was quite contentious. You might remember the army wives uh, going around the different hospitals and, and being worried about the closure of military hospitals. But it was the correct thing to do for the care of these terribly injured military personnel. Uh, and when they came into or admitted to the QE UHB Trust, uh, we took a large part in the care of their uh, military cardiothoracic and torso injuries best thing that came off it was we managed to get invited to 10 Downing Street so being into 10 Downing Street we met the Prime Minister and various uh, various dignitaries uh, at the time and that was uh, that was uh, very interesting to meet Tony Blair sort of uh, up close and uh, Cherie Blair and the ministers at the time interesting to speak to these people a little bit more fun aspects of Tim Graham then since retirement or winding down in 2016 2017 What's been the best thing about turning things down a bit for you? And what have you done yeah. to fill your time? I've been able to spend more time with Paula, my wife. We have a grandson in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, Paula worked for British Airways for 30 years, so we're very fortunate that we've got 
um, some very nice sort of travel concessions so we can usually travel nearer the front of the aeroplane than the back. So I suppose travel really, clearly it's been curtailed since the beginning of, of last year, but we have uh, traveled extensively uh, together. Uh, in uh, in lockdown, we've, uh, we've obtained, bought, inherited a dog, a cockapoo, which has kind of uh, taken over our lives a little bit. But uh, he's been he's been fun. So I guess I guess that's largely what's uh, what's taking up the time and doing a doing a fair amount of doing a fair amount of walking and getting out and about really. Might convince you to buy a bike yet? I've got uh, I've got two bikes. The problem is getting on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a bike and um, okay. spend quite a lot of time in Windsor, which is kind of uh, kind of nice and flat. Paul is not that keen on cycling, so I suppose we've not done too much of that yet. Pleased to hear that I've not bought uh, large amounts of, of lycra. So that coming, which would, clearly, <laughs> which would clearly be very, very frightening to the uh, to the locals. Oh, come on, Tim, be kind to yourself. So, a couple of quick fire, fun questions. Who is your favourite member of council? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I thought you were going to ask me. I thought you were going to ask me another question. I'm prepared for that one. Who's it's coming next. Member of council. I could be clever and say the one that I'm sat next to because I quite like them all. Um, <laughs> I, I'd have to say that my favourite member of council would be uh, Mr. Rajesh because he and I are sort of, uh, although we don't look the same, obviously we kind of kind of become blood brothers uh, over the last uh, quarter century. Don't tell him, otherwise he'll get a bit carried away. But that's also nothing to do with your chosen specialties. But we'll we'll move on. No, 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 no. It's uh, well, it's it's we've done a lot together, um, both professionally and personally. Very good. I think one of the questions you were maybe prepared for was Noah's Ark. I hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Noah's Ark has come again. Uh, Pala this time has been saved because most people seem to save Pala Rajesh, so he's he's safe. But. On the boat, there's only space for one more, and waiting down in the water trying to get saved would be Mike Griffin, Rowan Parks, uh, Judy Evans, and Claire McNaught. And you only have one space on the boat. Who say? Who do you say? And who drowns? Um, oh, that's a tricky one. That is a tricky one. Who do I save? Who would I bring on the boat? Well, clear this. There's, there's different reasons. Probably Claire McNaught, actually. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I did think you'd say that, but why? Well, she represents the, the future. She's got uh, a lot of potential and she's great fun to have a drink with. I'd definitely throw a life life uh, life belt in for Rowan uh, and for Judy. And I'd just sort of, <laughs> I'd have to think about Mike for a while. Okay. Oh, poor Mike. He gets a hard time on this podcast. Um, There's so oh, many president. people trying to save him. I wouldn't be able to get, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to get to the front of the queue. Of course, of course. I, I get that. Final question for me. In, in all the years, what has been your single biggest inspiration that has shaped the man Tim Graham has become? Probably meeting my wife, Paula, I think, latterly. Um, Good answer. I think, you know, it's. I had a very sort of difficult time professionally and personally around about the year 2001. And I was, I've been fortunate to... Uh, to subsequently meet Paula and get married again, actually in the library, in the college. And uh, she's been uh, an inspiration really, and has really sort of helped uh, stabilize, uh, stabilize my, my personal life, which is, I think has allowed me to kick on a bit professionally in the later years. Here, here, touche.
I think there's a lot that I, as a trainee, can learn from how you know, people I look up to, how they've gone from where I am now to where they are now and give me a sense of the trajectory that can get me there. So I guess the question is your, your journey, just walk us through some of that journey, some of the challenges and how that was overcome. So how do you encompass that without making it sound incredibly boring or you're reading from your CV? Um, I have faith in you. Tim. So I think in, I think in principle, times were different and we had to move around a lot. Uh, I think that's, so it, it is sort of a little bit sort of uh, quick fire and went to um, university in Dundee. Very pleased to go there. I think you would, in Dundee University changes how to be a doctor, not necessarily getting give, giving you a, it's not about a medical degree, it's about training to be a doctor. So I then came back from Dundee back to England, went past Yorkshire. I've never worked in Yorkshire, although clearly uh, remain uh, very strongly affiliated with the council, uh, with that, sorry, with the county. Um, and and um, never really felt underpowered um, in coming back to England. In fact, uh, felt that I'd had a very good sort of uh, undergraduate medical training. Worked in Nottingham, uh, anatomy demonstrator, CAS, CAS job then, CAS SHO, and then went on to a surgical SHO rotation. Did things like peds and thoracics, which was interesting, pediatric surgery. Worked for two uh, female pediatric surgeons there. And I have to say they were the two consultants that got on the least well. Uh, in over 40 years of my consultant career. So I learned quite a lot about um, diplomacy in the workplace there. Then got onto the local, uh, it would be called the General Surgical Registrar Rotation and worked in Nottingham and went out to Derby, which was great because it was what we used to call a cutting job. So I spent a year there doing quite a lot of general surgery, which held me in good stead because I feel that it's a good grounding for your, for your technical skills. Uh, and then um, made um, made the decision then at that point that I'd like to try to go into cardiothoracic surgery. So I went in at registrar level in Newcastle. That was in 1984. Spent a couple of years uh, up there. Um, did, and then in those days, you didn't sort of stay on in a regional rotation at all or a local rotation. So after two years to stay in, I needed to move registrar jobs. And I went to London and I went to, it used to be called the London and it became the Royal London and went there as a career registrar, clinical lecturer. And that's where I uh, did research into implantable left ventricular assist devices, uh, did uh, quite a lot of large animal operating, which of course wouldn't occur now. Um, and that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, living and working in London was, uh, was interesting, challenging for lots of reasons. Uh, and then off the back of that, um, I got the scene first senior registrar job in Leicester. So I went back up to Leicester, worked in Leicester as a senior registrar. Worked there for about two years and I was seconded to Papworth and did a year there as a senior registrar in transplantation. And then I obtained a consultant job back at the Royal London, which was what you used to call an A plus B job, is where it was 50% senior lecturer, 50% consultant. Uh, in retrospect, that was uh, quite challenging as a newly appointed consultant because you end up being a servant of two masters, yeah. uh, and it's it can be quite difficult. Stayed there for two years, uh, but around about that time, the Royal London was about to be was being amalgamated into Barts to form a very big unit, 
and it was unclear really what was going to happen to the Royal London. It's quite difficult, I think, to bring a young family up uh, in London to live there and work there. Uh, and around about that time, I was approached by a very dear uh, colleague, Bob Bonser, who sadly um, uh, died approximately five years ago, uh, but by Bob Bonser. And he was essentially setting up the unit at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which had kind of gone fallow uh, and really wasn't meeting its potential. Uh, and I suspect he persuaded me to to go there and I joined the QE in 1993. Um, so, and then I was being a consultant there, uh, senior lecturer within the university since 1993. Sorry, that's a lot of moving around and uh, there's benefits to that because you move around, you work with lots of people, you see do- lots of different systems. Yeah. I think it gives, gives you a degree of resilience, makes you quite robust. But it is inc- it was incredibly disruptive to personal uh, and and family life. Yeah, and that's you know that's a fairly comprehensive summary of your journey. And you know, for us modern day trainees, it speaks to almost a little bit of how good we've got it now. Because I can imagine with all that moving around would have come some uncertainty about whether or not there was a job to go to. But now we're all appointed. Well, most of us are appointed with you know, a six-year contract from SD3 to SD8 or even an eight-year contract from SD1 to SD8. And so some of that uncertainty has taken away family planning is much easier, et cetera. So, you know, it's important for, for us to remember some of the negative aspects of the previous iteration of training and, and appreciate what we've got now. But the one final thing for me is just to salute you for for being educated at the finest institution in Scotland, the University of Dundee. Thank you. I just knew you wouldn't be able to help yourself, Greg. It was quite a while ago now, Greg. Not <laughs> Standards are still high. A bad year for wine. Yeah, there you <laughs> Your training journey is so vast and so far-reaching. So much experience there. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I also I'm have sure to... you'd also have said sorry during the period in London. I spent uh, three months in uh, in America, in New England. Oh my goodness! Uh, working. <laughs> Uh, with a company that made implantable left ventricular assist devices, but also spent, was sort of attached to uh, Mass General and one of the local VA VA hospitals, which is very interesting because it gave you insight into another healthcare system. And uh, you make contacts and friends that you have for for the whole of your life, really. Yeah. You ever watch the New England Patriots? Uh, no, I never got to an American football game. I went to a couple of baseball games. I think I fell asleep at both of them. But... When in Rome, Tim, when in Rome. <laughs> well, um, our, our listeners will know by now, um, Greg is a huge American football enthusiast, so his heart is so broken right now. Um, again, as I said, I have so many questions from all the things that you've said, but I don't think we have time. I mean, what does 10 Downing Street look like? Is the food any good? Do you get to eat? What's the protocol when you meet a prime minister? So many questions. But anyway, I digress. I digress. Um, So we talked a lot about your training and clinical journey. Um, I think it would be only natural to explore some of the leadership roles you've had throughout your illustrious career. Um, I happen to know that you are the Associate Medical Director of UHB. Is that right? Yeah, so it's uh, they keep slightly changing the title. I'm the Assistant Medical Director for Clinical Governance. Of course, everybody knows what clinical governance is. You know, the uh, maintenance and improvement of, of standards of care um, so that I'm the, um, the medical director for that. Um, to put it into context, uh, is a very large organisation. It's, it's four hospitals, UHB Trust, Birmingham, four hospitals, 22,000 
uh, employees, mm -hmm. uh, over 2,000 doctors, um, over, I think, 1,200 beds. They clearly surge backwards and forwards at the moment. Um, over 200 ITU beds during uh, during COVID. So very, very large uh, organisation. So, and there's a, a large department that it's, it's the sort of risk and uh, clinical compliance uh, department. And I'm, I'm based there at the moment. So, yeah. Out of interest, how does one fall into a role like that? Um, I thought I would retire. I didn't really think that much about returning. And to some extent, it's about, it's about uh, taking taking your pension uh, and financial considerations when you come towards the, the latter part of your career. But I was asked by um, Dave Rosser, the, the, he was medical director, then chief executive, and I think you may be talking to him at, at some point. Um, he asked me to, uh, to undertake a, a role looking at um, looking at other parts of the trust. They were just going through a period of amalgamation with the mm -hmm. Heartlands. Solid Hope and Good Hope Hospital, and he wanted essentially to do a quality assurance uh, piece of work regarding the surgical services there because they were about to uh, merge. But it's really uh, uh, off the back of that uh, and the report from that, and then the trust really uh, have asked me to to stay on in this role. Around about the same time, I was also um, uh, appointed to be head of school of surgery for the West Midlands. And so the two sort of dovetail together quite well. Fantastic. You're also a member of council. Um, yeah. How do you get Ooh. onto that? How do you get onto council? Well, clearly it's an election of all the uh, uh, the members and fellows, uh, both both in the UK and abroad. Uh, I'd like to think you get onto it because you work with council and you're recognised for uh, for the work that you've done with the college by the fellows and members. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is maybe being recognised for other things that you've done uh, and mm -hmm. people who, who vote in these elections think that it would be a reasonable idea to have someone maybe with that background uh, sitting on council. I do think at the moment we've ended up with a really good group of people, which is sort of a bit of a triumph for democracy. It's a recognition of both what you've done for the college and maybe what, what you can bring uh, bring to the council. Now, I agree. And um, just with my experience as the current Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellow at RCS Ed, I've had the opportunity to get to know the higher-ups a little bit better and see what goes into actually running the college. And there's such a diverse group of individuals currently in council and in various roles from a huge number of backgrounds and it's nice to see a lot of diversity in there oh. there's women there there's people of different races it's it's absolutely fantastic um just moving down your qualifications and cv a little bit further um you have had other roles just like um jcie chair and the president of the society of cardiothoracic surgery are there any particular leadership roles you've held that have been particularly memorable or that you want to speak about today well, they've, yeah, they've, they've all kind of uh, been good and they've been, I think, um, a bit of an escalator. So, so one has, has led into the other and has led into the other, which I think is kind of a bit of an affirmation that you've, you've done the role reasonably well. So I suppose my big breakthrough, as it were, was um, becoming the training programme director in the West Midlands for cardiothoracic surgery quite soon after I came to Birmingham. And I was kind of told to do it, not appointed to it. Um, 
by Sir John Temple, who was a postgraduate dean in the region then, and he's a past president of the college. Um, and then I, I did that, and West Midlands is a big programme, and we did some good things. Uh, and then I uh, was appointed onto the SAC. I think the SAC is an excellent body. Uh, you know, it's the architect to some extent of surgical training. It's uh, in those days there were SAC visits. It was probably had a a more direct role in quality assurance. I stayed on the SAC and then was uh, fortunate to become the chair of the SAC. Quite sad when that finished because it's a bit like being head boy uh, at school or head prefect. You kind of know all the senior registrar. You kind of know what's going on everywhere in the country uh, with training. <clears throat> and it can be quite an influential role. That came to an end. Uh, and then to some extent, I was. Um, it was suggested that I might be interested in becoming chair of JCIE. So that was a bit of a shift of direction for me because it went from <clears throat> developing and delivering training to the assessment of training. Uh, and again, I was interviewed by four presidents, which was daunting. It's, it's daunting to get interviewed when you're, when you're slightly older consultant, uh, that anxiety never goes away. Uh, and I became chair of JCIE, which I'm sure most of your listeners will know, that's the joint uh, committee for the intercollegiate examination. So it oversees all the FRCS exams. As I became chair, um, the colleges had agreed that they were going to develop an overseas FRCS examination. So I kind of, I think it's called a hospital pass. I caught that at the same time I got appointed. And ended up staying on in that for uh, six years uh, and being able to deliver the overseas FRCS exams, GSCFE, which is probably might be one of the sort of the, the better things, better things that I've done. As it, I was fortunate when I was chair of JCIE that I worked with uh, David Richens, uh, who's another cardiac surgeon who's a, a friend of mine, but he's kind of the brains of the outfit. And he really got his head around uh, quality assurance and psychometrics. And I think we, largely through him, we made quite a difference in terms of improving, maintaining the standards of the exam, making sure that it was consistent and fair. So that was quite proud of the work that was done then. Around about that time, I suppose as I was getting older, I uh, had been on the executive of the SCTS, which is the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgery, which is the specialist specialty association and I was the, uh, the vice president and then the president from 2014-2016. That was quite a difficult time, a uh, difficult time for the specialty. There was a tension within the specialty essentially about the publication of outcome measures and whether they should be on a unit base or whether they should be on an individual surgeon based and so it became a tension within a, a specialty association between maybe putting the patients first or what should a membership organisation be doing. And there was tension between the membership and the society, and that was quite difficult to, uh, difficult to, to navigate. But that, uh, that role finished in 2016, and when you're president of society, you kind of drop off the end then of specialty association uh, because there's always people uh, coming up behind you. That, that coincided with the role we've spoken about, which was uh, with the trust. Uh, I'm becoming head of school of surgery in the West Midlands. I think probably because I was the oldest person around and sort of knew 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 where everybody was and and knew about things. And soon after that, I became chair of the COPS, which is a confederation of the postgraduate schools of surgery, which was 
being again being interested, a bit like being head boy again. You know what's going on all around the, the country. So I suppose that's a very long-winded way, uh, political answer, isn't it? Very long-winded way of saying, I think chair of the SAC and being chair of JCI are in, uh, incredibly interesting and uh, positions of uh, you're very privileged to be to be in those positions. But I'd like to think I'd sort of had a varied um, professional career and and moved on from rule to rule. Hopefully I've answered your question. Yeah. You have no doubt. If you listen nowadays, what we're particularly keen on is reflections around leadership in crisis. You alluded to 2014 to 2016 being a difficult time for the specialty at a time where you so happen to be leading that specialty. What are your reflections around the difficulties of that time also trying to deal with the numerous tensions that you talk about? Because I think there's a bit that you know we as future leaders can learn from how you dealt with that uh, to how current leaders are dealing with our current crisis through the COVID pandemic, you know, it's a different scale, but still principles remain the same. I think that's very astute because you've focused on what I would regard as being the most difficult, difficult time of my career. Sadly, it also coincided with one of my surgical colleagues also being in a, in a degree of uh, degree of difficulty. And there was a, essentially an investigation or an inquiry going on, around that colleague, which, again, which caused quite a lot of tension, tension with it within the specialty. And sadly, cardiothoracic surgery has got the potential to pull itself apart at times. And it may be, as you alluded to earlier, in part due to the sort of strong or particular types of personalities. In terms of sort of leadership, it was difficult because um, there were some people that were uh, clearly going to benefit or benefited personally uh, from pursuing a certain agenda. And that was at odds with what the larger part of the membership um, felt was was maybe the, the right direction. I think trying to steer a middle ground, you know, trying not to walk away from, from the problem, trying to walk towards it, making sure that you listen to both sides, trying to be balanced in that we must always put patients first but we are it was a membership organization so maybe thinking more about how we can enable members uh, to provide excellent care care for patients probably pretending that you don't know anything about it and listening to to both sides i think that's that that's that's probably the the, the key thing and probably the big element is time uh, it takes time to sort these things out. It takes time to to listen to people and get get their opinions. And everybody's opinion is of the same value. Uh, there isn't there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong. I'm very pleased to say that during that that time time period, or in association with it, elective operative mortality in cardiac surgery in the UK has become one of the best in the world. It's gone from greater than five six percent to less than two point five percent. So that may represent uh, lots of lives saved. Those developments may have been made anyway, but there were some surgeons that that were that were highlighted, or, or it became became public, and they they were probably damaged by it. So it is has been a it was a difficult difficult balance. Interestingly, now the specialty's moved on, and isn't necessarily reporting outcomes on a personal basis, and has gone. Uh, to reporting outcomes on a, on a unit basis, uh, which 
some people see as being a success and other people see as being the uh, the best and most rational and fair way to move forward. So uh, I learned a lot during that time. I learned a lot about uh, myself. Uh, I learned a lot about the specialty and I learned a lot about, about other people as well. Yeah. How I managed it or how we came out of it, probably not not for me to say. But it was, I think, it was most one of the most difficult times of my professional and uh, personal life as well. I can imagine, and you know, it's it's not within the remit of, of this podcast to to reflect on that. But I, I am grateful for your reflections on yeah. the leadership position at, at a time of both personal, professional, and uh, collegiate crisis within the cardiothoracic society. Um, but obviously, that has led you into the you know almost a subspecial scenario around clinical governance, and also led you towards the college as our head of professional standards. I thought it would be important for us if I put myself as you know a lay member of the college who isn't quite in tune with the inner workings of the college. I think it would be important for us to get a reflection from you on you know your role as the the head of professional standards, what that encompasses, and and part of your job, part of your time in that role has covered the anti-bullying campaign and our current campaign towards inclusivity and making the college, you know, right for everyone and, and bringing everyone together, which technically falls within your remit as well. So I guess what are your reflections around the role of, of head of professional standards? What does that mean to the FY1 who's just joined the College of Surgeons of Edinburgh? Well, you You've partly answered it for me, so thank you very much. You know, obviously, obviously the bullying, and undermining, harassment, uh, equality, diversity, inclusivity, incredibly important. I'd like to think over the years, uh, for me personally, those haven't been issues, um, um, but I think they are issues. Uh, if 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 that makes sense, yeah. in terms of professional standards. Um, other members of the council, um, I think, slightly view it as internal affairs, like with the FBI. And um, that is genuinely what I thought about it when I first heard about it. <laughs> I, I don't think it's I don't think it's quite like that, uh, to be honest. Um, I, I think just reflect that college, you know, five hundred year plus organisation has never really um, said these are the professional standards, or has not really uh, had a, a sort of. A, has has laid that laid that out very clearly. You know, we're we're known for our ex- examinations, assessment, training, education, but we should also be clearly known for standards as well. I think having the Birmingham office open and Chris Sanderson working there with uh, on on policy, uh, etc., has uh, did bring did bring a, a spotlight on this. And it was uh, Mike Lavelle Jones, the president prior to uh, Mike Griffin, uh, who. Uh, who thought it would be a good idea to essentially set up a professional standards office where queries and issues related to professional standards could be housed and looked at. And and I was asked to chair that and take that forward. We did some initial work looking at what that kind of, um, that that kind of rule or that office might cover. And it's things like uh, potentially invited reviews, um, et cetera. Uh, There's a whole sort of a bunch of things. Um, professional standards actually feeds into all the other silos of activity within the college and and probably should be really part of the horizontal working between those different parts of the the college silos i'm not sure i've answered your question but it's it covers a lot there's quite a lot of work comes through 
you know, comes through the door, as it were. It's based in, largely based in, uh, in the Birmingham office. And I think it's kind of quite a good go-to for the college. I think it's important that that role moves on. And I've chaired it for five years, and I'm just in the process of co-chairing it now with Bill Turner, who's another council member, who's excellent guy. He's been president of the BOA, so he will, you know, again, high standards, he will take that forward very well. I suppose... To answer your question, I'm just thinking, trying to answer your question now, what, what does it mean to an F1? What I would say to the, the F1 doctor is, and I would say to medical students, is you've got to understand that the general public and all the stakeholders that we work with uh, have expectations of standards of behaviour and performance by doctors that are greater than that of the general public. And you've kind of, we've kind of got to accept that and get on with it. And to some extent, you know, we do need to be prepared to be held to account. And I think this is the mechanism by which uh, the college can potentially hold, uh, hold, hold fellows, members uh, to account. And also it's about the standards of activity of the college as well. well said. I think that statement is so apt. Um, the patients are very much at the heart of everything we do. So it's only right that we ensure that everything that we're doing is at a high enough standard to remain accountable to the public which we serve. So thank you very much for all the work that you guys have been doing on that. And the Birmingham office and Chris Sanderson are absolutely fantastic having done a bit of work with them. So um, one thing I'd like to explore is quite a hot topic at the moment, training in surgery. Now you have roles as head of school and you've done a lot for um, education in cardiothoracics. Are there any specific challenges that you're facing now as head of school of surgery and to try and ensure that training is being delivered at a high enough standard? And are there any particular issues that you are particularly concerned about concerning trainees? So we could probably fill several podcasts with this. Probably. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and several webinars, etc. I mean, to me, it falls into two parts, um, principally. If you ask me about what the concerns were, I'll tell you what I'm not concerned about. I'm not concerned about the quality or the intellect of surgical trainees. and I'm not concerned about their work ethic. And I'm not concerned about, about their abilities. So let's kind of get that out of the way, okay? That's great so to I'm, hear. I'm not concerned about that. In fact, I'm inspired by several of them. Uh, and uh, continue to be uh, impressed by by lots of them. Obviously, can't answer this question really without talking about COVID, without talking about the pandemic. So my concern is that we cannot get the trainees into the right clinical learning environment for them to meet their curriculum requirements. So we just physically cannot get them patient encounters, uh, both 2D, Zoom, 3D in real life, just cannot get them to enough of those for them to meet their curriculum requirements. We can try and budget, we can try and do a bit of this, a bit of that, but overall I think that that is, that is, that is a real concern. And, and that's a concern. Um, my concern is that trainees are disadvantaged uh, through no, no fault of their own. So that's number one concern. Number two concern uh, predates COVID, uh, and I've noticed in more and more specialties now 
that once trainees in the UK system obtain their CCT, before they get a consultant surgical job within the NHS, they're having to do fellowships. Now, what does that say? Does that say that we're not setting the CCT high enough, that the trainees are not uh, of an appropriate standard ability? You've heard what I think about that already. Or is this um, a problem with NHS employers? And I think it's largely a problem with NHS employers and trusts in that they want to appoint consultant into posts and positions, which are often parts of subspecialties um, or don't actually quite fit with, uh, with the CCT. And so I, that, that's what concerns me, concerns me going forward. And I think we've been slightly disingenuous, uh, to be honest now, about, about CCT. That's not to criticise the level of it or those that get it, but we're disingenuous because although we say certificate of completion of training, NHS employers and trusts are not viewing that as being sufficient to employ people into consultant posts. So there has to be some thinking, uh, there has to be some clear thinking around that. Um, and I don't want to talk about subconsultant posts and subconsultant grades, but appointing people into, I, I can remember what it was like to be a newly appointed consultant in London to go back to the start of this discussion and how scary it was and how difficult. And if it hadn't have been for the three colleagues I worked with, um, then it, I would have probably been in, in quite a lot of difficulty as a newly appointed cardiac surgeon in London, swimming with the sharks. So I think that we do need to have some grown-up conversations about mentored practice, early appointments. Overseas, it's quite well recognised. You know, they have appeared at what they call a gazettement in Malaysia, uh, where people are appointed provisionally for a year or two years, and they go into a department and they're in a mentored or a, a safe environment. I, I, I do think that we do need to start thinking about that. So but those would be my two main concerns about surgical training. It's interesting you say this. I had a similar discussion with my husband, who's a GP, and he was arguing that their training program equips them with the skills that they need necessary to start from day one, whereas ours seems to be failing us a little bit. And um, I took that further to a discussion I had with Greg recently. So um, I don't know what you think about this, Greg. It's, it's a lot of what Tim has said was a lot of what we discussed, isn't it? Yeah, it was. And, you know, I, I take Tim's point. I think, um, yeah, we, we would expect completion, certificate of completion of training to mean just that, that you've completed your training and therefore you're ready for independent practice. But I look at fellowships and this is from the point of view of someone who's coming to the end of training and planning a fellowship. And I look at them slightly differently uh, to what Tim has described in that, yes, there's an element of it that is a failure of expectation from the trust. I, I don't necessarily think it's a failure of the training program itself, but what I think the fellowships do bring is to give an opportunity for the individual to, as I said to you offline, find your unique selling point. What are you going to bring to this department that we might not have already? And we also need to recognize that, you know, whether we like it or not, the days of, you know, 100 hours of training are gone. And so if I, as a colorectal trainee, I'm interested in minimally invasive colorectal surgery or robotic colorectal surgery, the volume required to attain that subspecialty expertise doesn't really exist in the current format of training. So 
Tim will therefore argue there's a problem with the training. But I think if you look holistically, it gives me then an opportunity to go out and hone my skills in a subspecial specialty area of my chosen specialty that I can then bring back to a department that they might not have already. So that is one avenue through which fellowships lend themselves to the end of uh, surgical training, in my view. So, so a couple of points there. One would be, so why not, as a department, make a proleptic appointment, you know, identify... Uh, identify Greg uh, and say, right, we're appointing you to this, and now we want you to to, to go away uh, to work to go away and and do that area. So yeah, that, would be, that would be an, another way of doing it. The other concern, of course, which again is maybe slightly uh, politically risky, but we need to be careful that we don't have a workforce that decides what it wants to do, rather than uh, the NA, rather than the workforce training to what the NHS needs them to do. The two things can be slightly different and and at slight odds with each other. And you've just got to accept if you stay in the UK that the NHS is a monopoly employer. Of course, of course. And I think to the second point, one would only go do a fellowship in an area that one thinks will be employable when you come back. So I think your choice is therefore limited and you can't go out and, and do what you want. Um, but yeah, it's, you're right. So your second point, we should have a system where you're employed and then sent away. And I think some boards, certainly in, in Scotland, are doing that already. Yeah, and, and there are instances of people being appointed and sent away to fellowship. But yes, you're absolutely right. That that would be a model uh, to aspire to. As, as you said earlier, Tim, we could probably fill an entire podcast with training and trainee issues and um it's starting to creep me out a little bit it's almost like you had a conversation with my husband because all the points that you're saying he mirrored in that he was arguing that you really shouldn't as a trainee be tailoring your fellowship to what you want to do it should be the workforce that should dictate that um maybe when all this pandemic stuff is over i could sit you two together i think you'll have a lot to talk about (laughs) I look forward to that. I'll, I'll cook you some food. I, I'm a, oh, here I'm we a go. good cook. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, listen, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I thought, you know, you alluded to uh, the, a lot of the work you had done in trying to establish the international version of our of our FRCX exam. But I, I think that doesn't quite do justice to all the work you do with the international arm of, of the college. So I thought we'd give you an opportunity just to elaborate on some of the work you've done with our partners in India, Singapore and our international fellows and members. So I, I probably didn't say it earlier, I've had a love, love affair with the college since, uh, well, obviously once I passed my fellowship, I was very pleased that they gave me that, but um, since the early nineties when I became an examiner and then, around about 2000 onwards became involved with the college uh, delivering exams and quality assurance cardiothoracic surgical training in Hong Kong and Singapore made uh, friends uh, you know and acquaintances there that have that, that, that have been really important to me professionally and personally for many years so <clears throat> quite a lot of work in uh, Hong Kong and Singapore we set up a, a, a review course uh, in the far east uh, again to together with uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. A lot of this work has largely been done with Raj, uh, Mr. Parler Rajesh, uh, I think, as he alluded to when, when you had him on the podcast. More recently, probably the, the best thing or thing to be most proud of is we were able to go to Malaysia and help them establish a national training program in cardiothoracic surgery. And we were there for, there for about 10 days and we visited seven centres and put a report together. We, you know, we introduced things like selection, formative workplace-based assessments, uh, rotations between uh, different hospitals, 
uh, training the trainers. You know, the sort of we we help them put the full package in, uh, and really rewarding uh, is that they're coming towards the end. The first first graduates are coming towards the end of the training program, about to sit the FRCS exam. Uh, end of this year or the beginning of next, and they will come out with a certificate of completion of training from the Malaysian National Training Program. So that's we're um, you know quite quite proud of that, and that's been quite a lot of work, but uh, but really rewarding and good to see the college, uh, Malaysia and Hong Kong and Singapore all working together jointly uh, in that area. So that's that's been one area. The other has been. Uh, just trying to uh, help uh, organise uh, the what are called the JSF exams. These are the overseas Edinburgh College FRCS exams that are delivered in uh, seven of the specialties now. Plastics has just started, and that's been a, an interesting piece of work, uh, standardising those, uh, making sure that it's uh, a really sort of gold-plated, quality-assured qualification uh, overseas. And again, that's been interesting, working with different overseas partners. But it's, it's all enjoyable and you get to do a little bit of travel with the college, which, of course, as we said earlier, I quite enjoy travelling and being able to take Paula uh, on some occasions. So it's uh, it, it's been very enjoyable. You know, hats off to you. Um, it, it's been a pleasure listening to your journeys, multiple journeys across the training spectrum, the leadership spectrum, the clinical governance spectrum, and all the different elements and ways through which you support college members, fellows, both home and away. And you know, tip my hat off to you. One final message to our listeners. I think we've covered a, a range of topics, but you know, if, if there was one message you wanted people to take away from having listened to you for the last 51 minutes, what would it be? Oh, it's difficult to say one one message, isn't it? I, I I thought you'd probably ask something like this at the end. Um, I think make sure we put the patient first. Try and be kind to the people around you, especially your family and the people that care about you. They they support you doing your career and and doing what you want to do. Try and help the next generation. You were once that generation. Try and help them. Pay it forward. You know the good things that have happened to you pay that forward and try to enjoy your career. There's lots of frustrations. Uh, it is a challenging environment, but try and enjoy it because you will blink and it will have flashed by. And when opportunities present themselves or you're asked to do things, think carefully, but usually do it. Give it a go. Tim, wise words as always. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tim, for being our guest. And um, I almost feel like we need a part two or part three to just unpick all the different streams and different things that you've been involved in. You sound like you've had a fascinating life and a fascinating career. For everyone listening, um, you know the email address you need to use to get in touch with us. So if you have any questions, comments, that's comms at rcsed.ac.uk. So that's C-O-M-M-S at rcsed.ac.uk. Thank you very much to Tim again, and of course, to my wonderful co-host. And until next time, stay safe and be kind to each other. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.